My life is a mess. You don't believe me? <laughs> yeah, you and everyone else. I seem to have everyone fooled. I know I look all right on the outside. I smile at all the right times. I make people laugh. I know how to make people feel good when they're around me. I am your model Christian. I know scripture inside and out. I lead a small group. I volunteer at a food pantry. I even sing my heart out and raise my hands every single Sunday. But I hide so many secrets. What can wash away my sin? Really? I just do what I have to do to get people to like me. I don't care about the lives of the homeless people that I serve. Most days I get annoyed when they stand too close or if they smell bad or if they want to say more than hello to me when they walk through the line. And I don't love the people in my small group. Most weeks I check my email all day just to see if it gets canceled so that I can have the night to myself. And when I raise my hands in worship, I'm so busy judging everyone else around me for keeping their arms crossed, I'm not even paying attention to the words that I sing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And I hate people. My dad for leaving and my mom for being so weak. When I'm alone, I can do whatever I want with my boyfriend. Spend however much time I want on myself or eat what I want just because it feels good at the moment. Because no one else knows. I still look like your model Christian on the outside. But I am tired of living this double life. What can want me whole again? I want to be clean, not just on the outside but on the inside, where it matters, in my soul. I'm tired of being loved as some Christian role model, when all the time I hate myself because I know. Even if they don't know, I know, and he knows. I've tried so many times to be different, to be on the inside what I've convinced everyone else I already am. But I'm stuck stuck trying to prove to everyone else that I really am the lie I present as my reality. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I want to be clean, but I feel so dirty. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fountain, no. Nothing but the blood of Jesus.
Today we're going to talk about God's three favorite words. God's three favorite words. Some people come into a worship room like this or in churches under the operating assumption that God's three favorite words are get to work. Get to work. Do this. Do that. Perform this religious ritual. Behave this way if you want me to love you, God says. Get to work. Actually, get to work are not God's three favorite words. And I think after looking at today's passage of Scripture in the Gospel of Mark, you'll understand why. If you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 23 this morning. You'll find Mark chapter 7 on uh, page 712 of your church Bibles. We're studying through the life of Christ through the Gospel of Mark. I want you to follow along with me as I read Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He, that is Jesus, replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is Corban." that is, a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. 
Are you so dull? He asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. For from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. This is God's word. Now, did you notice how many times in Mark's gospel in these verses that Mark had to explain something to his reader. You can see that by the use of parenthesis there, you see. Now, why is that? Well, it's because Mark's gospel was written, oh, we think in the A.D. 60s, probably when Nero was emperor of Rome and the Christians there in the city of Rome were being persecuted. And and so Christians in the city of Rome might gather at a house church And here they would, you know, can you just picture hearing this being read? That's how it first would have been communicated. They would not have had their separate copies of Scripture. It would have been read to them. And so Mark has to explain these things because the Christians there in the city of Rome, well, they're not Jewish. They're Romans. They're Gentiles. And so Mark has to explain some things for these Gentile readers, the Gentile readers in the first century, and yes, the Gentile readers uh, and listeners here in the 21st century. So, for instance, in verses 3 and 4, you know, uh, Mark's got to spell out some of these ceremonial washings and uh, and what they are, because otherwise the Gentile audience just isn't going to get it. That's why he mentioned how the Pharisees fastidiously washed their hands and pots and pans and how they, they ceremonially sanitized themselves after making contact with those heathen dirty Romans. And then that's why in verse 12, you see verse, uh, verse 11, rather, where Jesus talks about this word Corban. Corban, well, you know, had this originally been given to a Hebrew audience in Israel, there would be no explanation necessary because every Hebrew would understand what that word Corban means. Uh, but they're not. They're in Rome. And so, you know, Mark's explaining it to these Christians. Well, that word means a gift devoted to God. And this very familiar word in, in uh, Orthodox Jewish culture, they're in Israel. Well, they're not in Israel. They're in Rome. They're from another culture. And they need that explanation. I need that explanation. I'm not an Orthodox Jew. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. And then oh, one more time there in verse 19. Do you see that? Mark is translating for us, you know, uh, in saying this, Jesus meant that all foods are clean. And, of course, this was relevant in the church service because some in the church service may have wondered, now, okay, if I become a Christian, what's the fine print? Hmm? You know, what, what, what's in the footnote? What are the rules here? What do I got to do in order to stay in the good graces of God? Just tell me what I have to do, you see. So Mark's trying to explain, and, 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 and yet by the time we get to this verse 19, 
we're realizing here, especially in the whole story of verses 1 through 27, that Mark is not merely explaining a foreign culture. Mark is confronting a false theology, a false theology that existed in the first century, and I would suggest it exists even in our century. This false theology labeled get to work. This get to work theology, a theology that was owned and operated and franchised by the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, They'd been watching Jesus. His fame and reputation had spread. And by the time we get to Mark chapter 7, we see that there are Pharisees who have come not just from northern Galilee. These Pharisees have come from Jerusalem. They've come from headquarters. They've heard about Christ. They're trailing Christ. They're spying on Christ. They're in the audience, not so that they can learn about God and discover the truth about Israel's Messiah. Rather, the Pharisees are there to find fault. The Pharisees are there to criticize Jesus and his followers. And that's exactly what happens. And it happens after the church service. What we're seeing here is not a part of the worship service. Why, it's afterwards. It's mealtime when uh, the Pharisees see that, that some of Jesus' disciples, well, they're not following their traditions. You see, the Pharisees, a name which meant the separate ones, they had their protocol. They had their process for eating foods. Just lunch we're talking here. And it involved fastidious washing and scrubbing of one's hands, not for purposes of personal hygiene, but for ceremonial washing and ceremonial washing of one's cooking and eating disciples. And they're rather put off that Jesus and his disciples aren't practicing their tradition. And they say as such in verse 5, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with unclean hands? Now notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, why don't your disciples live according to the law of Moses? They didn't say that. They said traditions of the elders. And here's why. There is no Law in the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, that requires God's people to, to, to ceremonially wash their utensils and their hands. It's not there. Only the priests were required to do that. And that was when they were about to enter the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 30, verse 19 And yet the more that the Hebrew people scattered throughout the Roman Empire, outside Israel, as they interacted with the the non-Hebrew world, the Romans, the Gentiles, the Greeks, the more that the religious leaders felt that it was necessary to be as careful as the priests. And so to wash their utensils and the hands ceremonially as if they were priests. But keep in mind, this isn't a law. This isn't a command. It's their command And so they've made their command as important to keep as if one were keeping God's own word. And by Christ's day, by by Jesus' day, why this this practice was entrenched in 
Jewish religious life. In fact, a series of oral traditions, which later became a written document called the Mishnah, gave painstaking applications and interpretations of this ceremonial washing thing. For instance, 35 pages worth of instructions about how to do the dishes. Uh, A rabbi once forgot to wash his hands before eating bread, that rabbi was excommunicated. Another rabbi who was put in prison by the Romans nearly died because he used his ration of drinking water to wash up. I mean, this is the kind of thing that was going on here. And and so this is what brings them into conflict with Christ because Jesus refused to follow their traditions because they believed that the application of Scripture had the same force as Scripture itself and Jesus wasn't fighting. And the Pharisees were incensed by this. They were were offended when Jesus and his disciples didn't observe the rituals, uh, you know, uh, touching and being ritually contaminated by touching that which is unclean. Well, that's all Jesus has been doing in the Gospel of Mark, right? He touches a person who has leprosy. He touches a corpse. He touches a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years. He's doing this thing on the Sabbath. Ah! And they just, you know, they just, they just can't believe it. And Christ pushes back. He confronts them by quoting the prophet Isaiah, verse 6. He says, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And then Jesus says, you you boys have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the traditions of men. And he confronts them. He confronts the Pharisees for performing superficial displays of heartless duty. Superficial displays of heartless duty. And then Jesus gives an example to show that they're not doing this innocently. They're doing this for self-serving motives. Jesus quotes the fifth commandment in verse 10 Honor your father and mother. Now, originally, the fifth commandment was given to adult children. See, adult children. Well, how does an adult child honor their father and mother? They do this by seeing to it that their parents are cared for when their parents can, cannot care for themselves anymore. That's how you honor your parents. When your parents can't physically or financially care for themselves, to honor them is to take care of them. But the Pharisees taught that an adult child could excuse themselves from this responsibility by declaring their possessions Corban. Corban. And, of course, that means given to God, devoted to God. Well, what then would they do with that Corbin, with those possessions? What would that adult child do? Oh, the adult child would continue to use the possessions, but 
But on the death of the adult child, those possessions would then go to the temple. Guess who ran the temple? You see how self-serving this was? In other words, by doing some legalistic tap dancing around the fifth commandment, the Pharisees could claim that they had technically, legally kept the law. But Jesus knew better. He knew them. He knew their hearts. He, they didn't declare those possessions Corban so that they could give it to God. They, they did it so they could keep it from their parents who they're mad at for whatever reason and spend it on themselves. And then Christ closes verse 13 with this sentence. Look, and you do many things like that. Superficial displays of heartless duty. The Pharisees, oh, they were experts at it. I wonder if there are any descendants of the Pharisees in our midst. Well, let's see. What might this look like? What might superficial displays of heartless duty look like for us? Well, well, let's just start in here, okay? It might look like just showing up for Sunday morning worship and kind of just going through the motions. I'm going to endure the songs. I'm going to listen through the guy's God talk and then get on with my business. It's going to go in one ear, out the other, and, and then we're just going to call that devotion to God. It might look like that. It might look like that not only in the pew, but from behind the pulpit too, you know. I mean, there's about 300,000 congregations in North America. And my gut tells me that at least one of those congregations, there's a pastor who's just going through the motions. Going through the motions. They've lost their heart for ministry. They've lost their passion for God. They've lost their passion for people. And they're just trying to, they'd quit their church, but they don't know if they could find a job someplace else. See? Superficial display of heartless duty. And it goes beyond what happens in this room, you know. It could look, it could look like something as simple as say, say, Say prayer at mealtime, right? You get so used to, to praying before meals, it just becomes rote, it just becomes the same prayer. And, and, and then, you know, so much so that, let's say, oh my goodness, you're at a restaurant and then you just kind of forget to pray for your mealtime and, oh no, did I just sin? Is God gonna poison my spaghetti? What's going on here, you know? And, 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 I like what G.K. Chesterton once wrote. G.K. Chesterton was an English writer in uh, England a hundred years ago. Listen to this. He says, you say grace before meals? All right. But I say grace before the concert and the opera. I say grace before the play and the pantomime. I say grace before I open a book. I say grace before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing and walking and playing and dancing. I say grace before I dip the pen in the ink. I love that quote because it confronts my tendency to perform superficial religious displays of heartless duties and then just call that devotion to God. Here's one more from marriage. 
Let's suppose that uh, on Sarah's next birthday, um, I bring home a dozen long stem roses for her, and she meets me at the door, and I've got these beautiful roses for her. And, 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 and she says, Randy, they're lovely. Thank you so very much. And she goes to hug me. And, and then I just give her the stiff arm. And in rather in a business-like way, I say, you don't have to thank me. It's my duty. Did it because I'm supposed to. <laughs> this is hypothetical, of course. <laughs> But what do you suppose is going to happen next? I know what's going to happen next. I'm going to be sleeping on the couch with the roses. That's what's going to happen next. See, dutiful roses, dutiful roses are a contradiction in terms. If I am not moved by a spontaneous affection for my wife as as a person, the roses don't honor her. They belittle her. And that's the problem with superficial displays of heartless duty. And you see, 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 what if you fail in such displays? Well, if you fail, then you feel guilt and shame. You feel the weight on your shoulders, the gravity of, of your failure. I'm not able to measure up. That's what happens if you fail. Worse still, what if you succeed? <laughs> well, then you become proud and you become arrogant and you begin looking down at other people, you know? Then you start saying things like, well, if I can do it, anybody ought to be able to do it, you know? And you just have this haughty spirit, see? Superficial displays of heartless duty stemming from a get-to-work false theology. Well, Jesus says, rather than that, rather than, rather than a get-to-work theology, rather than a superficial display of heartless duty, Jesus says that he wants a heart full of loving devotion. If you forget anything else, don't forget this. Jesus wants my devoted heart, not my heartless duty. That's what Jesus wants. And in a brilliant move in these verses, Jesus tells the people that in principle, he agrees with the Pharisees. He agrees with the Pharisees in principle. They just need to do more than clean their pots and pans. They need to clean their hearts. He says if the inside of a vessel needs to be cleaned, how much more does the inside of one's heart? And then Christ delivers this revolutionary pronouncement in verse 15. And it is revolutionary. It it was revolutionary in that day. It's not revolutionary to us because when we're done here, we're going to go to little porgies for lunch and we'll enjoy it conscience-free. But he's talking to a Hebrew culture here and Jesus says in verse 15 nothing outside a man can make him unclean by going into him rather it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean do you hear what's going on Jesus Christ is amending the portion of the Hebrew scriptures our Old Testament regarding foods why only God can do that And that's Jesus' point. 
He's identifying himself by this pronouncement as the son of the living God. And this is where it gets kind of funny because as he says this thing, you know, the disciples are standing there, their hands are folded, they're nodding, they're agreeing, yeah, what he said. Then they leave the crowd, the crowd goes away. Verse 17 says they go into the house and the disciples say, Lord, that was awesome, that thing you said, that was incredible about that outside, making unclean, all that, that was incredible. What did you mean by that? Jesus goes, are you really? Are you serious? Verse 18. Are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? For it doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach, and then out of his body. And then, then we see that third explanation. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. See, But he's talking about more than foods. He's he's talking about ritual displays. Ritual displays, which might include eating certain foods, or it might include performing religious duties, uh, like uh, like church going, or tithe giving, or prayer giving, or rose giving. All of these in themselves aren't wrong. In fact, Christ isn't prohibiting any of those things. He's saying that it's possible for you to participate in them and bypass the one thing that God wants most, and that is your heart. Your heart more than anything else, church family. God wants your heart. And why? Because he knows that if he has your, if if God gets your heart, he gets you. And Jesus mentions this word heart, and it's, You know, it's a word that appears throughout the Bible hundreds of times. And when the Bible talks about the word heart, the Bible's not not using the word like we use it in our culture, right? You know, we like to make a differentiation between head and heart. You know, this person is... This person's making the decision with their head versus this person is making this decision with their heart or... This person is a thinking person. This person is a feeling person. That's not how the Bible uses the word heart. When the Bible uses the word heart, the Bible says that your heart is your control center of your life. Your heart is the OS of your life, the operating system which includes your emotions, but it also includes your intellect, and it also includes your will, and it also includes your conscience. Your heart, biblically speaking, is the essence of your identity. Your heart is why you do what you do. Your heart. Your heart is what drives you or pulls you or pushes you to act in certain ways. Your heart is why you have certain relationships. Your heart is why you make certain sacrifices. Your heart is why you enjoy certain things. And at the end of the day, if somebody were to ask you why you do what you do, you may not even be able to explain, but You know why you do what you do. It's because of your heart. Your heart is what makes you want something. Your heart is what makes you desire something. Your heart is what makes you worship. Your heart is a worship center. And it never, ever stops worshiping. You you will continue to worship 
long after we're dismissed here. Why? Because your heart is a worship center. So the question is, what is your heart worshiping? What is it passionately pursuing? And as far as the Pharisees were concerned, they worshiped control and legalism and superficial displays of heartless duties. The Pharisees passionately pursued a get-to-work theology. But here's the problem with that. What if your heart is defective? What if your heart is broken? What if what's in your heart is anger and evil and lust and greed and hate? Well, guess what? Jesus says as much in verses 21 to 23. He says, for from within, out of men's hearts, out of their operating system, out of their worship center, out of the sanctuary of your heart come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery, greed and malice and deceit and lewdness and envy and slander and arrogance and folly. Jesus says all these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. Church family, pay attention here. Why do pastors or presidents or generals or high-level government officials succumb to moral failure? Isn't it a heart issue? So whatever happened out there, it first happened in here. So my problem is not that I've committed the act of murder. My problem is a murderous heart that allows me to hate others who have been made in God's image. That's my problem. My problem is not that I have committed the act of sexual immorality or adultery. My problem is a lustful heart that craves the pleasure of sexual immorality more than the honor of Christ. That's my problem. My problem is not the act of stealing. My problem is a greedy, discontented heart that never seems to be satisfied. My problem is arrogance and lewdness and folly and every hidden toxic attitude that you can't see from where you sit, but God knows and God sees and it never escapes his watchful eye. And that's why superficial displays of heartless duties can never clean a filthy, dirty heart. All these evils come from inside. And that's why a get-to-work theology just won't work. And you know what happens next in these verses? Nothing, they're over. And then I'm reminded 
Then I'm reminded. I'm sitting there and I'm going, okay, what's the solution? And then I'm reminded that the solution has been doing the talking. The solution is staring the Pharisees right in the eye. Jesus Christ, who came to purify all these evils. (laughs) He didn't come for jaywalking. Well, he came for that. But more than that, more than that, you see. And by the grace of God, Jesus, in his death and burial and resurrection, he's rescued us from death. And by his Holy Spirit, he's purified us and given us new hearts. Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The one who can declare unclean food forever clean can create in you a new heart. And that's why God wants your heart, so that he can regenerate it, so that he can remake it, so that he can recreate it, so that he can purify it. And that's why Jesus came. That's why he invaded this world with a pure heart, a clean conscience, a sinless life on the cross. Christ's pure and holy heart was stained with our sin. Peter Peter, whose eyewitness recollections make up the gospel of Mark, you see. Peter himself would later write in 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Church family. God's three favorite words are not get to work. His three favorite words are it is finished. It is finished. And don't we gather here as a life-changing community not to celebrate our get to workness? Not to celebrate our religious duties. Don't we gather here to thank Christ for his finished work, his sufficient strength, his almighty power, his death, burial, and resurrection. Don't we gather here to celebrate that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that is who we are in Christ, the righteousness of God. His three favorite words, it is finished And we get his righteousness. That's who you are in Christ. That's who we are as a church. Amen? Amen. So what's in your heart today? What's in your heart today?